Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. All right, thanks for joining me again on the podcast. We uh, had a great holiday time, my family and I. I hope that yours did too. hope that you had some time to rest and relax and to reflect on the year that was and the year that is to come. It's always a good time to take stock of what you want to change, what you want to do differently, and always with the intent of being glorifying to Christ in whatever it is that we are seeking to pursue and the things that we are seeking to change. Let's get back into our topic that we've been discussing for the last number of weeks. We are talking today about the heart-mind connection and its relationship to worship. And I told you at the end of episode 43 that I would thoroughly define this heart-mind connection, and so we're going to give that a shot today. I'm going to just give a caveat that there's a lot of scriptures that are referenced in uh, this lesson, but I'm not going to take the time to read all of them to you. I'll give you the reference, but I'm not going to read them because that's just uh, that's just going to take up a lot of time that I could be used to explaining these concepts. So let's go ahead and go through this um, without any further ado. So in our episode last week, two weeks ago rather, we talked about the heart uh, and the mind and how Western society kind of separates those ideas out and says that the heart does this and the mind does that, and they really don't work together. All right, well, maybe that's a little strong. Maybe what you would rather say is that the heart and mind are often in opposition to one another. They, it takes time to get them on the same page. That would be, I think, a very Western idea of how to use or view the heart in the mind. As I said last week, God does not have any such distinctions between the heart and the mind. He views you as an individual, you as an individual holistically. That means he looks at all of you at the same time and he doesn't separate out all the different parts of you and say, well, I can totally understand why you made that choice because your heart was pulling you this way, but your mind said not to do that. And it's okay that you sinned because I know you were just following your heart. No, God doesn't do that. In fact, God defines the types of things that the heart can do and the types of things that the mind can do. And there's a surprising amount of overlap. So I'm going to give you a brief rundown of these things. Here we go. The heart, the definition of the heart, according to the word of God, is that it stands for the whole interbeing of a person. The heart is the wellspring of life. The heart is the seat of emotion, of intellect, and of the will. You got that? The heart stands for the whole inner being of a person. It is the wellspring of life, Proverbs 4.23. The heart is the seat of the emotion, the intellect, and the will. Now, here's what the Bible says about man's heart. That God knows it. Luke 16, 15. 
God is the one who is able to open the heart, to be receptive to his truth, Acts 16.14. God is the one who enlightens the heart so that the heart can come to understand and know the truth of God, 2 Corinthians 4.6. God directs the heart. God turns the heart, even the heart of the king, Proverbs 16.9. And God searches the heart, Jeremiah 17.10. So there is nothing that you can keep in your inner person, nothing that you can keep in your heart that God cannot know or find out or ultimately direct or persuade you to do something differently than you had previously intended to do. That should show you the incredible power of our God. In fact, it is the ministry the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit to regenerate the unbeliever's heart, that the heart that is a heart of stone becomes soft and a heart of flesh according to the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. Titus 3.5 and John chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. So that there was a brief description of what God knows about your heart. So now let's take and turn our focus to what is your heart able to do? All right, what is your heart able to do? Your heart can act in these ways. Your heart can be foolish. Romans 121. Romans 121 says that their foolish heart was darkened and they rejected the truth of God and they sought rather idols. All right, so your heart can be foolish. Romans chapter 2, verse 5 says that your heart can be unrepentant. It can be stubborn. It can be unwilling to change. In Mark chapter 6, verse 52, Jesus says that your heart can be hardened, that you can have a hard heart, not soft, not able to be molded, but a hard, stubborn heart. And that is a symbol or representation of the pride of life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says that your heart can be veiled. And what's interesting is he makes a connection <clears throat> in the previous verse, verse 14, and he says that your mind is hardened. Now, I actually do want to take the time to read these two verses because it proves exactly how God views the heart and the mind, that they are so intricately linked that it is impossible to separate them. And yet the Holy Spirit does talk about them as separate entities but describes um, the rejection or the equal rejection of God by both a person's heart and a person's mind. So listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 14. But their minds were hardened. And Paul's writing about the nation of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Their minds are hardened. For until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
you see that the heart is veiled. And that is a result of the mind being hardened. But both of those words, hardened and veiled, describe a position that the individual has taken against God. He has hardened himself against God, and therefore his heart is veiled. He cannot understand God's truth nor accept it. Thus we see the heart can be veiled. But it is veiled in connection with the mind being hardened. It is just impossible to separate the heart and the mind from one another according to how God made us. So the heart, though it is veiled, can also be sincere. Hebrews 10.22, you can do something with a sincere and genuine heart, and we're talking in Hebrews chapter 10 about believers. And then in James 4.8, the heart can be purified. Again, talking about believers. Um, this particular reference in James 4.8 is interesting because it's a, a reference to purification of the heart in contrast to somebody who is double-minded. Okay? So there is not a strict distinction of function between these two words. If you're pure in heart, you're of a singular mind desiring to perform and do God's commands. But if you're double-minded, some days you do God's commands, some days you live according to the flesh, some days you do uh, according to God, some days you do, you are totally inconsistent. And that's not a good place to be. And James is challenging the believers, don't be double-minded, be purified in heart. Have one goal in mind and in heart as you seek to serve the Lord. So as Westerners, let's contrast this once again. We tend to view the heart as the seat of emotions. But the biblical view of the heart is that the heart is a director of the entire person. The heart is able to influence the direction of a person's life for good or for evil. And this influence doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens as a direct result of the type of heart that a person has. So the influence, let me say this again, does not happen in a vacuum. It is a direct result of the type of heart that a person has. And there's only two types of hearts. A person either has a regenerated heart, where he has been made new in Christ, or he has an unregenerated heart, and he is dead in his trespasses and his sins. All right, now, let's turn our attention to the mind. What does the Bible say? What does God say about the mind? Well, here's the definition that I came up with after much study and research. And I would say this, the mind is the total inner man viewed from the perspective of intelligence and wisdom. All right, so when God is talking about the mind, he's often talking about intelligence and wisdom. So the mind is often the place where thought occurs, judgment, resolve, and understanding. Okay, so the mind is the place of thought, judgment, resolve, and understanding. And these are reflective type of, type of actions that the mind takes. They're reflective in that you have to process information and then make decisions about that information. 
But this is not an independent action from the heart, because remember, the heart is the seat of the emotion, the intellect, and the will. And so the mind assists the heart in their work together to give direction to an individual's life, to help the individual process the information that they need to on a daily basis. The mind, again, represents the total inner person. All right, it is the total inner person, just as the heart does. Now, what about the mind? If you're a believer, your mind must be renewed. Why? Because it's fallen. Your mind, your thinking, your judgments, your resolve, your understanding, those are all under the curse of sin and suffer from the effects of sin. And therefore, when you become a new creature in Christ, when you go from being uh, in the kingdom of Satan and the prince of the power of the air to being of the kingdom of light, that is, of Jesus Christ, your mind must be renewed. You have thinking patterns and habits that are deeply ingrained in your way of life. And so Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, that you must renew your mind. Your mind has to be transformed. And the only way that that can happen is through reading and understanding the Word of God. So the mind must be renewed. The mind can also be judged or tested. Psalm 7, 9. God says, in addition to being tested, the mind can be depraved, 1 Timothy 6, 5. Now, this is obviously in relationship or in reference <clears throat> to an unbeliever's mind. Their mind is depraved. Here's another reference in Ephesians 4, 17. The mind of the unrighteous is futile. Here's another warning to believers. The mind can be fleshly. Don't allow your mind to be fleshly. Colossians 2.18. Don't think according to the flesh. Think according to the spirit. You have to undo those sinful habits and those sinful ways of thinking. Don't be fleshly. The mind, most famously in Jeremiah 17.9, is deceitful. All right. Now it says the heart is deceitful above all things. But what that word heart is really describing are actions of judgment and thinking, which more characteristically fit what we would think of as the mind, according to Westerners. But again, this is another proof that shows us that God doesn't view these things as being separate. They are together. Yes, there are different aspects. Yes, there are various descriptions in the Word of God. But by and large, the heart and the mind work together. Now, man has been given a responsibility to control his mind. Listen to what Peter says. 1 Peter 1.13 Gird up your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. So do that by yourself. And it has to be according to the word of God. Gird up the loins of your mind. We already mentioned about uh, double-minded in James 4.8, but James uh, is a fan of this particular term. He uses it again 
in James 1.18, or I'm sorry, James 1.8, don't be a double-minded man tossed about here and there. Be a single-minded person. So thus, we can see man has been given responsibility to control his mind. Now, one more thing to think through. Consider the terminology of salvation. One can argue, and I think the scriptures are very clear on this point, that the heart and the mind must agree in order for genuine salvation to occur. Look at the terminology Paul uses in Romans chapter 10. But what does the scripture say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And you say, hey, it doesn't say anything about mind there. But in Paul's understanding, you've got to remember, Paul was a Jew looking at people, humankind, from the Jewish perspective that was given by God. The heart, in Paul's understanding, referred to the inner part of the person. It was the wellspring of life. But Paul's reference to the mouth was a reference to the intellectual understanding that the individual needed salvation and that it could only come from Jesus Christ. So the mouth, the mind, you know, we think our mouths are connected to our brains. Our mouth confirms what our heart believes. In conclusion then, we can positively state that based on the biblical evidence for both the heart and mind, one can say that man is a morally responsible person. He is able to direct the affections of his heart and his mind toward whatever he deems to be worthy. And this, this my friends, is what we call worship. So a summation then, a definition, if you will, of the heart and mind and God's holistic view. A definition is this. The interaction of the individual's will, intellect, and emotions, which respond in various circumstances of life, in such a manner that it either pleases God and brings him glory, or it does not. The heart-mind connection will either please God and bring him glory, or it will reject God and seek one's own glory and to worship something that is not God, an idol. Now, what is the primary battleground? Outside of, for example, being a believer or being an unbeliever, let's leave that aside for now, because that is obviously the primary, primary, primary battleground. You're either a believer or you're an unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever, your heart and your mind is enslaved to sin. If you're a believer, your heart and mind has been set free, and you can know the truth. You can practice the truth. As a believer, though, what is the primary battleground that we have to deal with? The primary battleground is the contrast between the new heart that we have, the new and renewed mind that we are cultivating, and the body of flesh that is still 
subject to the curse of sin? And of course, this answers the question, why do I still sin? Because, you know, I've been renewed in Christ. I've been, my sins have been cleansed. They were red. Now they've been washed as white as snow. The question that all believers have at some point in their life or another is, why do I continue to sin? There are various answers. Some people have minimized sin to such an extent for believers that they've redefined it and so that believers don't sin. And so you no longer have any, any conception of, oh, I'm still a sinner. That's not a biblical perspective. That would be like a um, higher life view of sanctification or a Kazikian view of sanctification. That's not what the Bible teaches. No, what the Bible teaches Paul, especially in Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 16, teaches that the flesh of a person wars against the spirit of a person. And the flesh is trained to love and take pleasure from sin. In contrast, the spirit is being renewed to obey the word of God so that you don't do what the flesh wants, you do what is honoring to God. That is, the fruits of the Spirit. That's how this passage ends, Galatians 5, 23. And the struggle, of course, is that it is difficult to practice the fruits of the Spirit. It's easy to give in to the lusts and the desires of the flesh. <clears throat> but that is the continual battle that we must work towards overcoming as believers in Christ. Now, let's just take a moment to think about this truth, the heart-mind connection, and how it applies to worship. All right, how do we take this particular truth about all human beings? All right, this isn't just about believers. This is how all human beings are wired. What happens if we allow our worship to be tuned to fleshly desires as opposed to physical truth? I think that the answer, in part, is that we allow what is gratifying to the flesh to become the prominent part of the worship service in the local church. Do you like light shows? Do you like movies? Do you like concerts? Do you like theater? We do like those things. And in a lot of ways, it's not wrong to like those things. But what do they appeal to? They appeal to the weaknesses of our flesh that we want to be entertained, that we want somebody to do the work for us, that, that we just want to show up and have fun and not engage our minds, not engage our hearts, in a real serious way, we want to engage in pleasures and fun things. We don't want to engage in serious intellectualism, serious confession, serious reflection. And if we allow, therefore, our worship to be cultivated, like the environment of our worship to be cultivated, and conditioned according to fleshly desires, the focus, the overall focus of our worship is going to go astray. We are not going to be seeking to 
learn deep things. We're not going to be seeking to practice deep truths. We're going to be looking for what, what makes us feel good. How do we look? What do other people think of us? Was that great for you? It was great for me. Okay. So many people in America choose a church based on how their worship of that church makes them feel, not according to whether the truth that was proclaimed is consistent with the Word of God. And that's a real danger because it's easy to deceive yourself. It's easy to think, yeah, we're doing we're doing something that's pleasing to God. Look at, look at everybody's having a great time. How can God be sad about this? Well, I don't know. People attend pop concerts and rock concerts and all kinds of other concerts on a regular basis. And they're having a great time. But is God pleased by that? No. No, God is pleased when his people humble themselves and they seek to elevate him as the only one worthy of worship. And they seek to put aside the entrapments and the ensnarements of the flesh. So with this definition of the heart and mind connection in mind, all right, as we've meditated on that and fleshed it out, let's revisit a seminal passage that we began looking at when we started this series on worship. And that is John chapter 4, verses 1 through 26, in particular John chapter 4, verse 24. Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman. Now Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman describe the means by which an individual worships. And Jesus says, those who are gods worship God in spirit and in truth. Now all that we've said about the heart-mind connection defines depth and definition for that word spirit. It relates to the total inner being of a man. And that's why Jesus could say to her, worship is not dependent on location or form or culture, but rather on the spirit of an individual. It's amazing how that one little word, spirit, can have all of that meaning wrapped up in it. But you have to know your scriptures. You have to know what God's perspective is. And when you know God's perspective, that makes it a lot easier. It makes it a lot easier to define these words and to make sure that when we say worship in spirit and truth, we know what we're talking about when we talk about spirit and we know what we're talking about when we talk about truth. So Jesus as he was defining worship for the Samaritan woman, wasn't refuting the worship process, right? He wasn't saying your process is wrong. What he was saying is that um, there is a foundation of truth that affects the individual person when they come to worship God, all right? You can't do what feels right to you nor can you just say, I followed this process, and because I followed this process, I have worshipped. All right, that's the problem that Isaiah, Nehemiah, uh, not Nehemiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, 
some of the other minor prophets, Malachi. The, this is the problem that they pointed out repeatedly for the Israelites. Look, you're doing the process, but there's nothing behind that process. There's no heart involved in it. So Jesus, when he was talking to the Samaritan woman, wasn't saying, your process is backwards. No, he was saying, your, your whole direction of what you're trying to accomplish is backwards. You're not thinking about spirit and truth. You're thinking about process and procedure. So how do we, how do we process this? <laughs> how do we process this truth from Jesus? That worship isn't cultivated by anything that we do, but by something that we believe. I think this is a good question to leave you with as you prepare to meditate on these things. And we'll come back next week and discuss how does Jesus expect us to get to a point of genuine worship if it's not just about a process? All right, with that, I want to thank you so much for your time and your attention, for listening. I appreciate all the support. Again, if you have any comments, questions, or feedback, hey, just shoot me an email at the Grace, not the Grace Brethren Chapel, but it's the it's Grace Brethren Chapel at gmail.com. And uh, you can shoot me an email there. You can uh, comment on my Facebook post or on the uh, Podbean website where you can access this podcast. Appreciate your thoughts and prayers. And if you're in the Northwest Ohio area and you don't have a church home, I would invite you to come see us at the Grace Brethren Chapel. You can find us online at gbchapel.org. That's gbchapel.org. Uh, we'd love to interact with you and meet you and challenge you from the pulpit in the same way that you're challenged as you listen to this podcast. God bless.